नमस्ते जय हिंद वेलकम टू अनदर एडिशन ऑफ एन आई पॉडकास्ट विद स्पिता प्रकाश दिस इज अ स्पेशल एडिशन विच इज बीइंग रिकॉर्डेड एट द रायसीना डायलॉग हेल्ड इन मार्च 2023 इन न्यू दिल्ली Our topic today is about an issue that could turn into a global flashpoint. The South China Sea quagmire, principles or compromise. China is in conflict with its maritime neighbors and there is an impasse which can negatively impact all of Asia. Before I introduce the guests, here's a short explainer. The South China Sea is one of the busiest waterways. It has several small islands and the disputes are over the claims made by China, Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Taiwan and Brunei over these waterways that date back almost 70 years the disputes have affected maritime trade as well as bilateral relations between these two countries the us is also involved in this dispute as it has maritime security interests in this region what is india's interest in this dispute well 55% of india's trade passes through the straits of malacca which opens into the south china sea Over to the experts we have today Dr Lin Kwok Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies Singapore She's got a stellar academic career Lin Kwok is a visiting professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and has held fellowships at Yale Law School Harvard Law School Harvard Kennedy School and NUS Singapore Dr Satoru Nagao non-resident fellow at the Hudson Institute USA Satoru Nagao has held numerous research positions in diplomatic and political field he's also been a security analyst at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Professor Rory Metcalf professor and head of National Security College ANU Australia he has 3 decades of experience across diplomacy and intelligence analysis academia and journalism he's a serving board member of the National Foundation for Australia China Relations at the ANU Cyber Institute and an Australian representative on the ASEAN Regional Forum Register of Experts and Eminent Persons Dr Kwok I'll begin with you uh, is it possible for China to break the current impasse in the South China dispute uh, the covid years have not seen uh, China showing any signs of accommodation so do you think that this impasse can stop now well I'm thank you first of all for having me on this show um on your question I'm not entirely confident in fact I'm not confident at all that the impasse can be broken there's been recent talks about how um countries both um from Southeast Asia as well as China would like to push for intens- intensifying the code of conduct negotiations however we've heard that before uh most recently in 2020 and nothing has come of that and of course if you have to if we think about it these code of conduct negotiations have been in the making for some two decades now um with very little to show for Um I think there's several things that stand in the way of concluding a meaningful code of conduct which will help to if not break the impasse but at least to reduce the impasse you know things like the scope of application of the code of conduct um you know whether it should apply to the entirety of the South China Sea as China would want or only in areas of dispute um you know the sort of dispute resolution mechanism whether it should merely be uh, bilateral negotiations with China or parties would have um 
ability to have recourse um, to uh, the mandatory dispute resolution mechanisms and the United, the United Nations Convention and the Law of the Sea. So there are these stumbling blocks to concluding a meaningful code of conduct. That said, I think China has every reason to seek to um, help to reduce tensions um, with its neighbors, not, uh, given that its um, competition with the United States is fast heating up. So I think it makes sense. If I were China, I would be seeking to reduce tensions with my neighbors, especially since those tensions have allowed the United States to forge stronger ties um, with even erstwhile um, uh, with countries like Vietnam, with whom it fought two decades worth of a war. So um, I, I think, you know, if China uh, were thinking strategically about its position in the region, it would certainly be seeking to break this impasse and forge uh, stronger ties with its neighbors. Mm -hmm. And even recharge relationships which had, you know, stagnated, like, say, maybe with Philippines. Um, I'm going to come uh, to you, uh, Dr. Nagao. You've studied and written about the role of Quad and the close ties between India and Japan um, with regard especially to expansionist China. Um, why is there no coordinated strategy among Asian countries to resolve the South China dispute? To discharge China's territorial expansion, we need to check the pattern of China's territorial expansion. Uh, there are three features. Firstly, they ignore the international rule. Uh, for example, the, what happened in the East China Sea is the example. Before the 1970s, they haven't claimed the Senkaku Island of Japan uh, is their territory. So uh, since uh, 1971, uh, they realized how important and they start to say, they start claim uh, this is their territory, but this is ridiculous from the international law. And uh, secondly, is when they find the power vacuum, they try to steal it. So, uh, for example, what happened in South China Sea is the 1950s, when France withdraw from this region, they take the half of the Paracel Island. In 1970s, when U.S. withdraw, uh, another half of the Paracel Island taken by China. And uh, in 1980s, when Soviet troops withdraw from Vietnam, they take the six feature of the Spratory Island. In 1990s, when the U.S. withdraw from Philippines, they take the mischief reef, so they are safe. They, when they find the power vacuum, they steal it. Military balance has changed, they steal it. That is a pattern. And the third pattern is their effort is including economic effort or other aspects, not only the military. That is another effort. So BRY is one example. So to deter China's territory expansion, how to do that? Yes, their budget is increasing very high. So to maintain military balance, we should increase the defense budget. That's true. But uh, China is rich, not easy. So that's why the, another method is needed. That's why Quad, the, we can point it out to deter China's expansion in South China Sea. If the Quad four country corporate, China need to divide their budget, the multi-direction, against Japan, against India, against uh, Southeast Asian countries, uh, because uh, corporation to support Southeast Asian countries by using the Quad framework. And so that's why to maintain military balance, built from the budget, this cooperation is effective. So China cannot move, even if in the South China Sea, if we cooperate enough. That's why Kuwait and the South China Sea issue is combined. 
wrong explanation thank you very much <laughs> okay so that's kind of revolutionary or should i say that would make uh, china more uh, uh, wary or even russia more wary about you know have the quad getting military connotations uh, professor medkov i come to you you know australia is seen as a kind of a middle power in uh, and an ally of uh, the us which has interests in south china sea can it risk a conflict with china and um, will it engage more for conflict resolution now uh, especially with the quad as uh, you know was said that the quad has strategic interests now so will it become more uh, involved in conflict resolution look thank you uh, uh, and i think that australia's role like so many other powers in the world is one of a, a stakeholder in the security and stability of the south china sea i think it's really important to put the south china sea in that global context it is if you like everyone's business it's so vital to international connectivity to maritime trade to the global commons uh, fisheries and also as a uh, a laboratory if you like as to whether multiple nations can resolve essentially territorial differences and i will come back to your answer about australia but um just to note that um you know there there are some there are some green shoots some positive signs look at indonesia and vietnam for example essentially agreeing uh on the demarcation of their ez boundaries recently so there are law based solutions if players and of course the big player being china were ever willing to actually countenance them where australia comes into the picture is you're right as a stakeholder as an ally of the united states but also as an independent power in the indo-pacific and i guess i believe our government's trying to do multiple things here on the one hand you know we we're, we're asserting our rights as uh if you like a power that 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 um relies on the south china sea for our own economy so rights of overflight transit freedom of navigation are, are of great interest to australia even if we're not doing traditional you know or conventional fonops but our air force does maritime surveillance there as we've done for 30 or 40 years and we are interested in a strategic balance and equilibrium in the region uh where china can't be coercive or assertive at the expense of others but we're also interested in uh preventing escalation and i think that i i wouldn't necessarily call it conflict resolution because we're a long long way from that but australia like so many other powers now has an interest in ensuring that on the one hand uh aggressive action is deterred but that in doing that uh we're not further destabilizing the situation so therefore there's a lot of talk now of guardrails of confidence building measures of risk reduction measures uh the code of conduct may not be the solution there because as we've heard it's moved at a glacial pace and 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 China has almost sought to weaponize those negotiations in ways that exclude legitimate global stakeholders in the south china sea from actually uh being in the south china sea but there is i think a renewed interest now in using for example regional fora regional groupings to set some standards to reduce the risks of conflict and escalation there and that's something that i would encourage india for example to take uh, a closer interest in china has this um it's particularly irked of that australia about orcus and uh it sees that it's born out of a cold war mentality uh some of the politicians are even making veiled threats uh, against australia um 
What is the perception in Australia? Is China viewed as a threatening power at all or does trade surmount everything else? There are so many answers to that question. There's so many questions embedded there. Um, look, I think the, the long story of the Australia-China relationship, just as China's relations with many other powers over the past decade, has been that uh, you can't separate the economics and the security, the economics and the strategy. If you develop an economic dependence on China, then you're in trouble uh, in the long run, whether that's Australia or whether that's uh, countries elsewhere in the world. Uh, you mentioned the, um, you know, the technology sharing arrangement that's been uh, labelled AUKUS, but that's really just one piece of a much larger regional puzzle of balancing. So AUKUS is essentially um, Australia working with two very trusted partners to build uh, stronger capabilities so that a stronger Australia can be a stronger partner to others in the region. Um, the fact that we're now considering building uh, the kinds of submarines that China already has all over the South China Sea. So don't forget that, in a sense, um, Australia, like others, uh, you know, whether it's India or Japan or others, is literally trying to catch up and balance and protect our interests. Uh, of course, that's irking China because it's it's reinforcing the realization in Beijing that it can't dominate the region. So it's going to play a very aggressive campaign of disinformation to suggest that somehow those reacting to China's military modernisation are the destabilisers, whereas the truth is precisely the other way around. Um, and to conclude on that point, where the current Australian government is going, I think, is a relationship of stabilising ties with China, but not walking back on any of the national security measures we've taken to protect our interests as a sovereign power, and that includes developing uh, substantial naval capabilities, such as through AUKUS. Uh, Lynn, I'm going to come back to you. You're in, you know, um, you're based in Singapore, uh, so not technically so close to the South China Sea problem. But, you know, you've been watching mm. the the whole quad uh, fracas which happened here in New Delhi. Uh, the foreign minister's meeting, uh, apparently the South China Sea did come up for discussion. And the statement is indicative that the members kept reiterating that Quad is not a military alliance, but Russia doesn't believe in that. China, of course, will not believe that. Um, and there are strong overtones about China. You know, uh, the whole thing that they're saying, we strongly support, I'm quoting, we strongly support the principles of freedom, rule of law, sovereignty, territorial integrity, peaceful settlement of disputes without resorting to uh, threat or use of force, freedom of navigation, overflight, oppose any unilateral attempt to change the status quo all of which are essential to the peace, stability, prosperity of the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. These are all uh, veiled, uh, you know, may not be threats, but signaling to China, isn't it? Yes, I think the short answer to your question is yes. Um, I think there are um, implicit or veiled criticisms of China's behavior in the South China Sea in that statement. Um, you know, you, you mentioned um, the Quad earlier and how it's perceived in the region. I think the first point to note is that whereas when we first started, um, in the, when the Indo-Pacific concept or strategy first emerged, you know, a few years ago, countries in Southeast Asia were very hesitant to kind of go on board with that concept because they worried about what China might think, what it might mean for ASEAN, etc. Um, come the Quad, when that came along, I think you saw countries, um, in a sense, being more accepting of alternative um, 
uh, I guess, frameworks or architectures mm. or overlapping architectures for helping to manage disputes in the region or, you know, the balance the power in the region. So, for instance, Singapore said that the Quad was to be welcomed if um, it if it brought um, greater peace and stability to the region and if it, you know, complemented ASEAN's role in the region as well. Um, and you had um, the Philippines foreign minister then um, who talked about the Quad um, being welcomed because, you know, frankly, um, ASEAN didn't didn't seem able of, on its own, managing the region's problems. And the region's problems are many. Um, it's, it's China's behavior in the South China Sea, the sort of, um, you know, objections to valid assertions of rights, uh, navigational rights and freedoms um, that you highlighted in the statement. It's, you know, the implicit uh, threat or use of force um, uh, to, to resolve those disputes. Um, and it's, it's encroachments upon um, the exclusive economic zones of various coastal states in the south, surrounding the South China Sea, which really is the bread and butter or the fish and oil and gas, um, which helps sustain the livelihoods of, um, in many cases, very poor Southeast Asian countries. Um, so, so yes, those statements, uh, that statement was, in fact, a veiled criticism of China's behavior. But um, I think uh, going beyond that, I think we also need to think a little bit about how, you know, other countries might be contributing to instability in the region. I, I don't buy um, China's um, narrative that it is the United States and its warships or other naval powers that are destabilizing the region by its warships. I think those are us keeping, helping to keep, keep the South China Sea um, open um, by asserting um, lawful um, navigational rights and freedoms. Um, but I think there are certain um, acts that perhaps could be avoided, you know, like painting the current um, geopolitical competition between the United States and China as having an ideological basis. I don't think that necessarily helps improve the situation um, because it introduces more problems into the already um, mounting list of problems that the United States and China already face. Uh, speaking of warships, like why has the U.S. Navy sent Nimitz? Um, it's one of the oldest nuclear-powered uh, ships. What combat value can it bring? You know, I think the U.S. as well as other naval powers, France, um, for instance, or even other European powers, Australia, etc. I mean, they send um, uh, various naval vessels into the region, perhaps sometimes to demonstrate um, strength mm. and resolve, but also there's a symbolic value to um, these various um, uh, deployments. I think it's very important um, that the U.S. as well as others send naval vessels to the region to um, highlight that they are merely asserting lawful rights um, and uh, that are vested under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea when they apply um, the, um, the, the waters of the South China Sea. And um, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't always be thinking about military might and, and, okay. and what, you know, a particular asset brings to the table in terms of military might. We must also think about what it means the symbolically. Optics. <laughs> the, the optics, but symbolically. So when Europe or other middle powers send vessels to the region um, to support or promote the rules-based order, I think that sends a strong message. It sends the message that it isn't just about U.S.-China competition. What's at stake here isn't, you know, U.S.-China competition and the U.S. seeking to dominate 
regulate um, the region over China, but it's also about just, you know, we're concerned about the rules-based order, we're concerned about what happens in the region, we're concerned that, you know, if there are disputes, that's fine, but let's have the disputes um, resolved or managed in accordance to international law, hmm. the guardrails that um, we've already mentioned right. earlier. Right. Uh, Dr. Nagar, I'm going to come to you. Um, the Philippines is in talks to possibly include Australia and Japan um, in sea patrols with the U.S. So one question on that. And the second question is that, you know, the countries in the immediate vicinity of China, they face similar kind of threat. But I'm going to, I asked you this even in the beginning. Why is there no coordinated system uh, to deal like a coordinated security system. You talked about increasing military budgets, but there needs to be more than that uh, to secure these regions, don't you feel? Of course, uh, coordination is best, but uh, all these countries are sovereignty country, independent country, so they have their attitudes, they have their strategy, so coordination is a very tough job. In this case, of course, United States should show the leadership in this region, uh, for a long time, hub and spoke system is uh, a main system to maintain the balance. Hub and spoke means that United States is uh, central and uh, based on the bilateral alliance between the US and Japan, US and Australia, US and the Philippines. Bi bilateral basis alliance consists of full security system. In this case, all of the information gathered the United States but Japan and the Philippines do not share the information. Japan and Australia do not share the information, even if they are ally of the United States. So, for, so in this case, if the coordination move we should establish, in this case, U.S. lead uh, all of the activity. But the United States uh, need to deal with many issues in the world now. Mm. So in this case, they need to deal with Russia, Ukraine, or they need to deal with the Middle East. So the, under such kind of situations, uh, United States asked the allies to share more security burden in this region. And Japan tried to reply it, Philippines tried to reply it. Uh, so coordination has just started. So okay. under such kind of situations, uh, this coordination is, yes, improving, but under process. Not mm -hmm. established like uh, NATO because they have the wrong history, but we do not have the wrong history mm -hmm. in this region, in the Indo-Pacific. That's why that coordination hasn't happened, but improving. That is my answer to your, your question, I think. Right. Do you think that there is a hesitation in that, that we don't want to become a NATO? Uh, NATO, because uh, you can compare the geographical area, uh, NATO in Europe, uh, in America-based uh, map, uh, Europe is very big, but indeed, Europe is more small region, so it is more easy to coordinate. Mm. But in the Pacific, very, very, very big. Yeah. So in this case, in this case, the coordination is a mm. very, very big, tough job. Mm. So, of course, uh, if we can establish this Asian NATO, it will be a very effective way to deter China. That's true. China has, uh, China's ally is only one, North Korea. The treaty-based ally is on North Korea. And Russia, and Pakistan, and Myanmar, they, uh, they will be the partner, but uh, not formal ally. United States side, 52 allies, even if we only count treaty-based ally. And so, coordination itself is very difficult, but achieves some part of it. Not China. The United States has achieved. And this number of the coordination is decisive factor in the last three competitions in the past, the World War I, the 32 versus 4, the 32 win. 
and then uh, World War II, the 54 versus 8, 54 wing, and uh, the Cold War between US and Soviet, and 54 wing, and the 26 rules. So in this case, uh, this number is very big, uh, important. So that's why you are right. The coordination of the many countries is very important. But because of these many countries, it is not easy to achieve. Right. That's what happened, I think. So uh, Rory, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, you know, is this, this hub and spoke and bilateral uh, security uh, uh, mechanisms. Uh, will that work or is there possibility of a new Indo-Pacific security initiative coming up in the near future? Well, I, I think I'd, I'd reinforce uh, the assessments of my colleagues on the panel here about the complexity of the regional security architecture. There's no one-size-fits-all. There's, no, uh, there's no regional NATO, nor is the region going to solve all, all of its problems purely through the the well-meaning multilateralism of, uh, of ASEAN or ASEAN-centric institutions. There's, I guess, a multi-layered solution here, or at least a multi-layered way of managing the strategic problem. And the strategic problem is, you know, at one level ensuring that coercion uh, doesn't succeed, that, that might does not make right, um, but also that stability can be maintained in the process. The hub and spokes model, where the United States was the centre of a system of bilateral alliances, it still exists, but it's evolving. And we're now seeing, of course, the spokes being connected. Uh, so a web arrangement. The quad, obviously, is, is, is important in that, but also the trilaterals, Australia, Japan, the United States. Um, you know, Australia, Japan, India, Japan, India, the United States. You, know, you, you can go on. Uh, we're even doing things now with, with, with the French or with the Indonesians as well. And so... All of that I see essentially as um, adjuncts to or supports to the, um, you know, the alliance-based system that is where deterrence resides. Deterrence against China resides through the US and its bilateral alliances. But to manage stability, so deterrence in the bilateral alliances, soft balancing through the minilaterals, um, you know, the three and the four-sided um, polygons, but then um, stability can be reinforced through the multilateral and multipolar nature of the region. So, you know, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asia Summit, all of these institutions that so far have underperformed and so far have not lived up to their promise, but actually have strategic stability, confidence building, preventive diplomacy written into their mandates, mandates which actually China accepted once upon a time. Uh, we don't need to create a whole new Indo-Pacific security architecture, and that may say, sound a little strange coming from someone who's a strong advocate of the Indo-Pacific as a strategic system. Um, but, of course, a one-size-fits-all that brings in all of the small countries of the region um, is going to be incredibly unwieldy. It's the minilaterals, like the Quad, that can provide the glue that connects the other parts of the system. You know, the Quad is, I think, as we heard in this conference at Ricina, a lighthouse. I call it a kind of an island of trust. Uh, and we've got to keep expanding that island of trust, you know, the Quad engaging with other partners in development and capacity building. And all the while, keeping open the door for communication with China, because mm. in many ways, uh, there's nothing th 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 there's nothing that's sort of accommodating or surrendering about having a a relationship of dialogue with China, it's actually trying to persuade China that all of these other diplomatic arrangements are there for a stability that is actually, I think, going back to your point, Lynn, in China's interest. Um, so let's keep that message So what is the through. red line that, that could make uh, 
things difficult for China. Uh, suppose they were to, if the military drills that they're doing right now with Taiwan, if they cross over, if that happens, then what? Because is, is there a plan B? Right now, what you're seeing is this um, loosely held uh, hub and spoke model. But what happens if there is some kind of a uh, direct conflict? Then what happens? So you're taking us to a a very grim yes. place here. Um, but, you know, after the I'll, Ukrainian situation, yeah, no. you have to have that. Yeah, no, look, I'll, okay. I'll answer the question. I mean, it, it is the it is the cool question. What happens when, you know, literally the balloon goes up yeah. uh, in, in, you know, in, the, in, in, in the ugliest way possible? Uh, well, I wouldn't, in that context, I wouldn't call hub and spokes loose. I mean, the, uh, the US-Japan alliance, the US-Australia alliance, they are serious alliances uh, with mutual obligations. And although... I think it's difficult to speculate about what the deterrence balance or response would actually look like in a Taiwan conflict. It would be hmm. formidable. And the whole point, of course, is to ensure that the conflict doesn't happen in the first place. So I would argue that um, a US-led strategic response to whether it's a Taiwan crisis, whether it's an East China Sea conflict, whether it's a South China Sea conflict, you know, there are so many flashpoints. I mean, there's, and then, of course, we haven't talked about India-China as well. Hmm. Um, that's one vital part of the deterrent puzzle. But I think what isn't really well understood yet here is what an immediate global crisis a Taiwan conflict would be. Just as the Ukraine war, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, precipitated a global crisis, even more so, I think, in the case of Taiwan. You know, so many countries would have to shut down their economic relations with China overnight, which would be catastrophic for China and the global economy. If we can weaponise that message ahead of time, and that's a message to every global stakeholder, it's a message to Europe, it's a message to, to India and to others, then I think we actually stand a chance of preventing that disaster you speak of in the first place. Right. Uh, Lynn, I'm going to come to you. You know, at the Munich uh, Security Conference earlier this year, the Indian ex External Affairs Minister said, and I'll quote him, for 45 years there was peace, there was stable border management, and then no military, he's talking about India-China, and then no military casualties on the border since 1975. That changed because we had agreements with China not to bring military forces to the border, which is the line of actual control that we have, and the Chinese violated those agreements. He went on to stay, say that the state of the border will determine the state of the relationship. And uh, so how does the world see the India-China border conflict? We talked about uh, Taiwan with uh, Rory. How does the world see the India-China border conflict? Uh, is it as concerned as it is with the Taiwan situation or with the maritime conflicts which are going on, China's maritime conflicts in East Asia and uh, the South China Sea? I think the suggestion in your question is a correct this a correct one, namely that the concern about um, the India China border dispute is less in the region um, than it is say over the South China Sea um, uh, dispute given in Taiwan of course, given um, I guess the geographical you just feel a bit more geographically distant from the India um, China dispute um, that said, um, I think. It is a very important dispute um, insofar as if it is resolved by force, um, that undermines um, the UN Charter against the use of force um, and um, more broadly undermines international law. And so I think just as I have very strongly advocated that um, all countries 
um, should be concerned about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I would similarly say that all countries should be concerned that the dispute over the Indian-China uh, uh, border, um, I think that too should be resolved in accordance with international law and countries should be concerned about that as well. You know, who owns what, where, I think that's less important. So in the South China Sea, um, my concern is less over the territorial dispute because countries can argue perhaps by showing evidence that, you know, one or another has a better claim over these features in the South, these land features in the South China Sea. What concerns me there is that the maritime domain, where there are clear principles under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, that has to be clearly um, delimited um, or um, attributed or sovereign rights given under the convention. So, you know, the adherence to the rule of law is that part of it is very important. So uh, perhaps countries, you know, do not need to take a position on who has a better claim on the disputed border, but they do need to take a strong position that, you know, international law should be upheld and there should be no use of force on that border. Dr. Nagao, I'm going to come to you final questions. The same question which I asked, how does the world and how does Japan see the India-China conflict, the border conflict, one that? And the second question is, you know, since the wars, Japan's military budget, um, it it hasn't increased so much as we saw now. Uh, I think 836 billion is what the military budget is for the next fiscal it seems to indicate to us that Japan is um, is preparing for some kind of a conflict. So tell us how that happens, because you said military budgets. I'm going to go back to that early point that you made, that military budgets have to be stepped up in this region if we have to be pragmatic about the conditions that we have right now in Asia. Yeah, that's a very good question, I think. Uh, I repeatedly say uh, how to maintain military balance is the main point of the counter-China strategy. That's true. So uh, how uh, dividing the China's budget in the multi-direction is a good way. If Japan possesses the counter-strike capability and India possesses the strike capability, China cannot ignore the two sides at the same time. Australia will possess uh, submarine-based uh, cruise missile capability uh, soon. In this case, uh, China cannot ignore the attack from Australia, even if, the uh, even if the Australia is located far from China. So that's why the Quad will work to maintain military balance if they possess the strike capability with the United States. And all of the uh, four countries will possess the strike capability. But at the same time, uh, to deter uh, China's invasion to Taiwan or China's expansion and territory in the South China Sea. Indeed, uh, other aspect is also needed, for example, the economy. If the country like Japan, Australia, the, or India rely on the trade with China, in this case, China expects ah, they will not intervene because uh, they sacrifice these benefits. Uh, can they mm. do that? No, China will think. In this case, China think. when we invade Taiwan, we can win, or something like that, because other country will not react to it. So that's why we should not rely on the trade with China. Uh, supply and China sh should diverse, or uh, we should not rely on China. Uh, anyway, in this case, that is also needed. Uh, that's why TPP, the IPF, the, this kind of the economic framework the uh, US suggest, or Japan try to um, uh, lead. Uh, currently, TPP is uh, not American project now, Japan's project, mm. <laughs> despite America said uh, first time. And, uh, Another method is also the international status of Taiwan. 
In the Taiwan is independent country. Yes, no one doubted it indeed. But China said this is not. So we need to write their status. In this case, it looks like when China invade Taiwan, in this case, everyone see this is invasion. This is a violation of the international law. In this case, many countries support Taiwan. So China expects such kind of situation and gave up to invade. That is the ideal situation for us. So, but if we ignore this status, maybe China think, ah, world will ignore Taiwan and we can invade and we will win, something like that. So, rise the international status of Taiwan is deterring um, China's invasion. So, in this case, the contribution of India is very important, and Japan, Japan why we focus on national security strategy now is because um, there is a possibility the situation uh, will appear that China can invade Taiwan uh, soon. That's why uh, we must decide. We cannot ignore Taiwan. If the, uh, China starts to invade, if the, the Japan will not allow the United States to support Taiwan, uh, automatically China can win in the Taiwan, we uh, think. That's why the, uh, Japan cannot uh, escape from the situation. We need mm. to support the US, we need to support Taiwan. So that's why the uh, Taiwan crisis is emerging. We must do something, we must do something. But in this case, India's role is also very important. In this, uh, when we check uh, India's uh, uh, diplomatic uh, uh, activity toward Taiwan, uh, indeed, India is rising Taiwan's uh, status in the international stage. The, that has started in 1995, start re-establish diplomatic relations with Taiwan, uh, even if it's informal. And uh, the since the 2008, uh, when we check the public document of India, we cannot find any word of the one-China policy. So, yeah. so India's, uh, and the Surabaj, the foreign minister, he pointed out in 2014, if China, the, uh, asked uh, India to admit one China policy, uh, China should accept one India policy. Uh, this means that uh, Arunachal Pradesh was a territorial uh, issue, maybe China gave up and uh, accept uh, this is India's territory. So um, that is the right thing because, uh, yes, uh, India's claim is a legal one, a right one, that's why. So India's right. Uh, but uh, in this case, India's activity toward, uh, activity toward Taiwan rise in terms of status of Taiwan and prevent uh, China China's invasion toward Taiwan, I think. So that's why uh, India's role is very important, I think. But I should stop with that. I'm sorry, <laughs> wrong explanation. No, that's fine. Uh, Rory, I'm going to come to you. Uh, one, the same thing, uh, you know, which we discussed. How does the world view the India-China conflict, which uh, you mentioned early? The second one is that, you know, uh, the ASEAN region, you mentioned the ASEAN region. Now, for almost 10 years whenever i would go to cover the asean uh, meets i would always see that you know there's this uh, consensus actually that uh, that america that erosion of america's strength in the asean region had started taking place in the india pacific region uh, and the dynamics of uh, you know i think america got involved in their own issues they were not paying attention to what was happening in the indo pacific that kind of changed with quad to some extent and uh, uh, you know with uh, with uh, president trump um, china kind of capitalized on that ignoring that America did. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, is it too late now uh, for the American involvement? Has the horse left now? There's no point bolting the door. 
Good, good questions. There's a lot there. Look, on, on the, uh, the India-China relationship, um, I think it's, it is important that the international community focuses much more on this. I think the, uh, really the violence uh, in the Golan Valley in 2020 was a very, very bracing moment internationally. The, the Docklam uh, incident in 2017, likewise. And you know, speaking personally, I would like to see more countries really openly um, recognising, uh, I guess, th that India has, uh, ha has really been the target of quite an aggressive position by China on, on, on the border and, and supporting India more, more openly. Now, I don't think that the Quad is going to turn magically into a military alliance. I don't think you're going to see, um, and I don't think India would want, um, you know, direct military support, if you like, the front line on, on, on the disputed border in the Himalayas. But there's all kinds of indirect support that the Quad and other partners should be giving to India at every stage of this dispute, whether it's in, uh, you know, whether, whether it's in capability, whether it's in intelligence, whether it's diplomatically. Uh, and likewise, I think that's they're the kinds of expectations we would place on India if there were crises in, in East Asia. Going to your question about ASEAN and, and really the broader region and the American role here, uh, you know, I think that the, um, the death of um, America as a decisive power in the Indo-Pacific uh, has been um, prematurely announced many times, and I think now is another of those occasions. Uh, I think what the Biden administration is demonstrating is that America is back in a comprehensive way, and importantly, it's not only in a military sense, it's also um, improving from a low base, if you like, um, uh, geoeconomic engagement, but it's improving it. And of course, there's a big base if you think about private sector American investment in the region, which is massive. So we need to somehow mobilise that for the strategic competition. Um, America will stay, in my view, in the Indo-Pacific. If the United States is serious about competing with China, it cannot compete with China without playing a strategic role in the world's pivotal region. And I think both sides of American politics now understand that. So for friends of the United States and allies, we just have to help shape and, and moderate that role in ways that support stability as well as deterrence. Um, and, and there's a role there for ASEAN. I think the ASEAN institutions uh, that we speak of there, while they may underperform in some ways, have maintained uh, levels of dialogue, levels of internal balance and stability within ASEAN. And really now is the time for those institutions uh, and leaders within those institutions to step up and send concerted messages to China that it can't dominate uh, this multipolar region. Right. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you, Dr. Lin. Thank you so much uh, for explaining this very complex uh, issue about the South China conflict. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for watching or listening into this episode of ANI Podcast with Smita Prakash at the Raisina Dialogue. Namaste. Jai Hind.